everyone. Welcome to a new semester of the Criminology Academy podcast, where we are criminally academic. My name is Jen Tosleib. And my name is Jose Sanchez. And it's episode 89. And for this episode, we're hosting Professor Richard Rosenfeld, who is speaking with us about his career as a criminologist, his work explaining U.S. crime trends, his advice for young scholars, and his thoughts on the field of criminology and criminal justice. Richard Rosenfeld is the Curator's Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Criminology and Criminal Justice at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. He is a Fellow and Past President of the American Society of Criminology. His current research focuses on crime trends and forecasting. In this episode, our conversation centers around three of Richard's publications. First, the 2017 Sutherland Address, Studying Crime Trends, Normal Science, and Exaggerated Shocks, published in Criminology in 2018. Second, The Past and Future of Crime Forecasting in Criminology, published in The Criminologist in 2023. And finally, Did Violent Crime Go Up or Down Last Year? Yes, It Did, which is an opinion editorial co-authored with Professor Janet Lauritsen and published in The Washington Post in 2023. With that being said, let's bring Richard in. Hi, Rick. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are excited to speak with you about your career and your research interests. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. All right. So like we like to do with these episodes, let's start at the beginning. And, you know, we were literally just talking about how you grew up in St. Louis, but after high school, you moved around a bit. You did your or you started your undergrad at the University of Wisconsin and then transferred to Reed College in Oregon. Then you ended up at the University of Oregon where you completed your degree. You also earned your PhD at the University of Oregon in sociology. And so as you were you know, sort of going through your collegiate career, what prompted you to earn a degree or degrees in sociology? Did you always know you wanted to be a sociologist or was it something that developed as you went through college? I went to Wisconsin for a variety of reasons, but Wisconsin then, and I assume still now, had a very strong program in American history. And when I was in high school, I loved history. So that's why I went to Wisconsin. The first course I took at Wisconsin was a course in sociology. We had, at that point, they had two intro social courses, one called something like Intro to Sociology, and the other called Intro to Social Disorganization. And uh, that one was co-taught by two faculty members, Nick Demarath and Gerald Marwell. It blew me away. From that very first course, I decided, okay, now I know what I'm going to major in. And I majored in sociology, got my undergraduate degree in sociology, and then went on and got my PhD in sociology. It was that first course that did it for me. Wow. That's a pretty cool experience to have in college. I feel like, I mean, myself personally, I probably didn't have that until a few courses in where I really honed in on what I was interested in and what kind of caught my attention. So, Yeah, I don't know. I could have been so open and naive. I could have taken anything and that would have been my (laughs) major question. I don't think I feel like I did something like that because I started at a at a community college and English was my best subject in high school. So I first started out as an English major. Then I took a psychology class and switched to a psychology major. And then as I was going through like the list of 
prerequisites that I needed to transfer administration to justice was some of the classes that I could take. So I took a class in that and then I switched my major again. And I think there's like one or two more majors in between all those, those three. I ended up with like five different declared majors while I was at community college wow. and then finally settled on administration of justice. And that's kind of landed me where I am now. Well, I never had that kind of indecision. I knew from the beginning what I wanted to major in and never looked back. So we know that you've had or kind of have always had an interest in social structure. Yes. Just did that come from your first course then on social disorganization? Yes. Yeah. And whatever in my background sort of prepared me to be open to and accept a sociological perspective as opposed to, say, a psychological perspective on human behavior. I'm not opposed to psychology, but for whatever reason, I've always been more interested in group-level phenomena, in how people's behaviors are influenced by the groups they're part of and how those groups themselves are structured into a social system. For whatever reason, that's been more of greater interest to me than why one individual behaves in one way and another individual behaves in another way, or why an individual's behavior may change over the course of an individual lifetime. These are all, of course, very, very important emphases in contemporary criminology. I applaud them. There's great work in those areas. Just not the area that caught my attention. So kind of going off of that, while you were at the University of Oregon, it came time for you to write a dissertation, just like yeah. all of us. Yeah. And you included elements of this interest of social structure by looking at inequality, but you right. did so by examining crime. Yes. How did you end up writing a dissertation on crime and yeah. therefore entering the world of criminology and criminal justice? Right. Good question. I never took a course in crime, you know, or criminology. And my primary interest, as you've indicated, was in social structure, social inequality. I did develop an interest in Merton. But, you know, Merton ranged widely. Not, he didn't simply devote his attention to crime. At the time I was thinking about a dissertation topic, my mother, who lived in St. Louis, was mugged getting on the bus. Actually, it happened twice. Once getting, or both times getting off the bus, coming off the bus, she never got hurt, but somebody swiped her purse. And that stuck with me and you know, was concerned about her. It also sort of, I guess, awakened some broader interest I had in crime. And so that I began to think, well, I'm going to do a dissertation on crime. And I originally began working with a faculty member by the name of Ken Polk, P-O-L-K. And Ken was a labeling theorist. And he was the only faculty member in the department who did anything kind of more or less directly related to crime or criminal behavior, but from a labeling perspective. Ken was a great guy. We had a good relationship, but we never hit it off in terms of the topic. I was never all that taken with labeling theory. Wonderful theory. It just wasn't my cup of tea. And then 
I had another faculty member by the name of Ben Johnson. And Ben was a sociologist of religion. And we had several courses together. And finally, he said, so do you have a dissertation chair yet? And I said, no, I don't know quite what to do. I'm interested in Merton. I'm interested in crime. I want to put social structure and I don't need to work in some way, but I don't know who to work with. He said, well, you work with me. I said, well, Ben, you're not a criminologist. You're a sociologist of religion. He said, crime, religion, two sides of the same coin. Don't worry about it. So he became my advisor and turned out to be a great relationship. It took me years for a variety of reasons to finish my dissertation, or actually even to start it. I finished my comprehensive exams, dropped, I wanted to leave academia for a while, dropped out, worked a series of jobs, and then finally came back in. I came back in because I had an opportunity to teach a course, this is as a not yet finished graduate student, at a maximum security prison in upstate New York. Great Meadow Correctional Facility. And at the same time, I began teaching Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, which is an engineering school in upstate New York. And so those were my initial teaching experiences to engineering students who weren't all that receptive to sociology mm -hmm. and to prison inmates who were receptive in their own way. But there were, you know, there were challenges there, too. That was my initial foray into teaching. Looking back, I'm so thankful that those were the ways in which I kind of cut my teeth as an instructor. Very challenging at the time. In those days, you know, I was in my 20s. I looked all of 14 years old. And uh, it was a trip. But uh, I'm really, really happy that that's how I started out. Wow. What two very different experiences than what, Yeah, I mean, just apart from each other, but then, you know, your typical teaching at a right. college. <laughs> well, the engineers in some ways were tougher in a way, not all of them, of course, but they had this very concrete, not very abstract way of thinking about human behavior. The inmates didn't. But many of the inmates thought, well, what in the hell is this guy going to teach us about <laughs> crime? Right. right. We know everything there is to know about crime, certainly more than he does. And I had to find a way around that. And finally, the way I did, or part of the way I did, was to ask them, I said, what's the crime rate? And they said, the what? Crime rate. The number of crimes per 100,000 population. What is it? Well, nobody knew. Nobody even knew the definition, much less the rate itself. So we started in on a kind of, you know, aggregate or macro context of crime that wasn't part of their own individual experience, and then kind of built down from there to their own experience. That's sort of how I broke through, not with all of them, but with most of them. Anyway, wonderful experience. All right. Okay. So after your PhD, you worked at Skidmore College in the Department of Sociology, Anthropology, and Social Work. And right. then during this time, you landed a postdoctoral fellowship at Carnegie right. Mellon University. Right. 
where you were from 1984 to 1985, and you worked and studied under Al Bloomstein, who is well known for his work on crime measurement, criminal careers, and also Jackie Cohen, who is known for her work on demographic trends in crime and prison populations and also criminal careers. What made you decide to go for a postdoc and how did this experience at Carnegie Mellon transform your career, specifically as it relates to your work in criminology? Well, it was fundamentally transformative. The way it happened was I was at Skidmore. Skidmore, as you may know, is a small, you know, quite good liberal arts college. Didn't devote a great deal of emphasis to research, very teaching oriented, and uh, didn't leave much time for research. And after my dissertation in particular, I wanted to research more than I was able to when I was at Skidmore. And about the time I began thinking along those lines, I saw an ad in a newsletter about a postdoc opportunity at Carnegie Mellon. And I have to tell you, I never heard of Al Bloomstein at that point. I don't think I'd ever heard of Carnegie Mellon. I probably had, but I knew very little about it. But I thought, okay, a postdoc, this thing is reading like I can just go there and do research on crime. So I applied and was, you know, got the position and just had, you talk about an kind of eye-awakening experience. It was just great. Al Bloomstein is, he's become a very good friend. He was just a joy to work with. Tough, incredibly tough. I brought him up. He said, you know, bring, after I was admitted, he said, bring me a paper you wrote. I can read it. And he'd read some of my stuff, but he wanted to read a full paper. I got it back. It was so filled with ink, blue ink, I could barely read my paper or his comments. So he was tremendous working with Jackie Cohen, one of the smartest people I've ever encountered. Now, you're right. Al's emphasis, especially at that time, was on criminal, individual criminal careers. But he gave me a choice. He said, look, there are two emphases I want to follow right now in my own work, the criminal careers work, but I'm also interested in demographic change in crime. Pick one. And I said, well, I'm picking demography, you know. And that's what I did. I concentrated my work at Carnegie Mellon. I learned so much about how to be a you know, halfway competent social scientist. I'll give you one example. Al was trying to explain to me the difference in orientation between a sociologist, as far as Al was concerned, and a criminologist in the study of crime or anything else. And here's how Al put it. He said, look, the sociologist is primarily interested not in the dependent variable, but in the independent variable. A sociologist will say, I'm interested in social inequality, or I'm interested in how racial oppression influences social action. It may have a lot of outcomes, and I can apply it to a number of those outcomes. My primary interest is in let's call it the independent variable. Al said, that's not the way a criminologist ought to pursue things or, or other scientists. You start with the phenomenon you're trying to explain, not with the phenomenon you think may do the explaining. He once used the uh, analogy, he said, 
you know, a water witch where people will take a stick and go out and try to find water. They'll go like this, like it's all magical. But he said, that's how the sociologist tends to proceed. They take their independent variable and they go, it can be applied to this. I can apply it to that. I can apply it to that. <laughs> and what Al said, no, you start with a phenomenon. You know, this comes through in Godfrey and Hershey as well. There's the same emphasis. Start with what you want to explain and then move back, as I'll put it, like peeling layers from an onion, move back into various explanations. That was the orientation. It certainly changed the way I studied the world. That was an absolutely terrific experience. I also got to, so I was a postdoc in the program. And the year before me, Rob Sampson was a postdoc. Rob and I overlapped. We had known one another a little bit, and uh, we got to overlap and work a little bit together. So it was just a joyful experience. Yeah, I can see how the two of you would have some commonalities. We did. In your, yeah, for sure. Okay, so after your postdoc then, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but you went back to Skinmore for a couple of years and taught sociology courses. Okay. And then from there, you landed a job at the University of Missouri, St. Louis in 1989. And you've been there ever since. And, you know, you really, in your postdoc, you really started to expand your career as a criminologist. And then UMSL, it feels like, I mean, you took a job within criminology. So you really cemented yourself as a criminologist. Right. What? originally attracted you to UMSL and what's kept you there for the past 34, 35 years? Good questions. Two things attracted me to the job. One was it was home. I'd Mm -hmm. grown up in St. Louis. I'd been gone for a while, but friends of mine had begun drifting back, you know, who had also left after high school, began drifting back home. And they were saying, you know, This place isn't as bad as we thought it was when we grew up here. St. Louis then, and still is, was known as a family-oriented town. When you're a teenager, a family-oriented town sounds like a huge bore. It's not the place you want to spend much time. But as we got older, people began having families. Family-oriented town didn't sound so bad. So... Friends of mine began drifting back. And then there was the job itself. You know, it's a research university, research-oriented job. It looked good. So I ended up at UMSL. Now, why stay all those years? I was fortunate enough to join a department that was growing. We had been an administration of justice department, one of those old AOJ departments, I recall. Anyway... So we changed our name to Criminology and Criminal Justice, wanted to change the orientation so that we study not only the justice system, but also, you know, the genesis of crime. And we had the great fortune of working under deans at the time at the university who were very pro-growth. We had resources to grow and we were able to build the department. So it was fun to be kind of on the ground floor of a department that even as an assistant professor, you felt like you had some influence over, right? You could really help develop. And we developed it into 
generally regarded as one of the best programs. So, and I just adored my colleagues and that's why I stayed so long. Yeah. It sounds like a fantastic experience. I've heard nothing but good things from people who have worked and are working there. Well, Kyle was there. Yeah. Yeah. Kyle was there. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So, Let's move on then to your bigger contributions to the field. I don't think it's indisputable that the bulk of your time as a scholar has been devoted to examining and understanding crime trends and forecasting. So we want to start our discussion of your contributions on that topic. And so in your 2017 Sutherland Address to the American Society of Criminology titled Studying crime trends, normal science, and exogenous shocks, you argue that cross-sectional studies are not pertinent or enlightening when it comes to examining the problem of crime. Can you tell us more about this argument and why you think it's so important? Did I really put it that strongly? You did, yeah. (laughs) Gosh, if that's how I put it, I should probably go back or should have gone back and rewritten I've done plenty of cross-sectional studies. Some cross-sectional studies can be enormously enlightening. What they cannot tell you much about is how things change over time, you know, by definition. They're about how conditions in one place compare to conditions in others at more or less the same period of time. And my interests have been for a long, long time change, how things change and crime rates change over time. That really began at the very end of my dissertation. My dissertation was a cross-sectional dissertation, right? I took a sample of cities and I looked at the degree of inequality and the degree and crime rates of various types. And it was cross-sectional until the final chapter. For some reason, I looked at Oh, a period of about maybe a decade or something during the 70s at the sample of cities of mine. And what I noticed was that, generally speaking, as crime rates went up in some cities, they went up in others. As they came down, they went down in others. And as inequality changed, crime rate changed. Now, that was a different issue, why crime rates might be higher in some cities than others at the same point in time. This was getting more at what is it that's driving the change in crime and how much of that can is attributable to changes in equality. And that always stuck with me. I had a little chart. Actually, in those days, we didn't have Excel, so I put it together by hand. Time goes by. I didn't do a lot with crime trends over the next decade or so. Steve Messner and I got busy working on crime and the American dream. And that's fundamentally a cross-sectional assessment. You know, we ask, why are some societies more prone to serious crime than others? And while there are parts of the book, especially in later editions, in which we do try to address change, That's not the fundamental orientation. But as time went on, this interest of mine in change over time continued. And I uh, began looking at conditions that I thought could help to explain crime rate changes over time 
my primary focus came to rest on economic conditions. I became very interested in how so-called consumer sentiment influenced crime rates. Later, I became interested in how inflation rates influenced crime rates. And so, you know, my interest really was solidified in terms of looking at change over time. And then more recently, within the last year, I've become very, very interested in the whole business of forecasting crime. So why the interest in change? Again, I would have rewritten that section that you referred to. You do say that cross-sectional studies are can tell us things about crime, but right. you're going more into this aspect of right. change. So. Yeah. I think at one point I said, a cross-sectional study is like a frozen smile in a photograph, right? It does tell you something, yep. but you really want a moving picture to get the full story, right? Yeah. So, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I don't think I can tell you all the reasons why I'm interested in change. Some are kind of trivial. Nothing stays the same. Everything that we observe, we observe in a frozen state, you know, only instantaneously, and then it's on to something else. Some of those changes are quite subtle. You wouldn't even notice them over time. On occasion, others just shock the system. And that's the genesis for that article that I wrote. And by studying change, you come closer to being able to make valid causal statements about what's causing what. You come closer. We don't make, there are no definitive causal statements to be made in, in our field, but certainly studying why things change over time and how those changes are related to changes in other time series. That brings us a little closer to the question of causation. So, that's my current obsession and has been for a long time. Why crime changes over time and now more recently, how those past changes might be able to help you predict future changes in crime with all the modesty that you need to engage in that kind of enterprise. So, yeah, that's my interest is in change. I just finished a book for Cambridge University Press. Uh, Cambridge has a, a series of small books called Elements in Criminology. David Weisberg is a series editor, and my book is part of that series. It'll be out sometime early next year, and it's called Crime Dynamics, Why Crime Rates Change Over Time. And, you know, it, it tries to survey much of what's been done in that area, but also focuses on my own work. Sounds great. We'll have to keep an eye out for it. Do. And speaking of forecasting and predicting future crime, recently in November of this year, so just last month, you and Janet Lauritsen, who we've also had mm -hmm. on the podcast, wrote mm -hmm. an opinion editorial for the Washington Post regarding the change in violent crime in 2022. Right. Um, it's titled, Did Violent Crime Go Up or Down Last Year? Yes, it did. And right. I love that title. That's such a good title. In this op-ed, you discuss how the FBI's uniform crime reports 
data showed that there was nearly a 2% drop in the U.S. violent crime rate in 2022, including a 7% drop in homicides. Conversely, the Bureau of Justice Statistics National Crime Victimization Survey showed a 75% spike in violent crime between 2021 and 2022, while the data from the FBI and data from the BJS traditionally tend to move in the same direction. We're clearly seeing that this is not the case with regard to these statistics. Can you give us some insight or offer us some insight into why we're seeing this discrepancy? What's going on with violent crime in the U.S.? Which one is accurate? What should we be believing? You know, those sorts of things. Yeah, I wish I could answer each of those questions. I can't at this point, but they are answerable. And I think it's up to the Department of Justice, where both of our major crime data systems come from, of course, both the UCR out of the FBI and the NCBS from the Bureau of Justice Statistics. I mean, they're both situated there. It's not the responsibility of an individual researcher to figure out this huge discrepancy between what they're telling us about violent crime last year. When that discrepancy is so large, so unprecedented, then I think it's incumbent on the agency responsible for the data to have engaged in some research to enlighten readers, including policymakers, about the source of the discrepancy. I have every reason to believe that the BJS, I don't know about the FBI, but the BJS is doing that. So, you know, we wrote the op-ed because we had seen the, our original intention was, okay, the FBI data are going to come out for the year 2022. They'll be out in, you know, 1st of October, 23, as usual. We'll write an op-ed on it. Maybe do a little comparison with the NCVS, you know, just to kind of update people on where crime is. There were lots of indications after that big rise in homicide in particular at the height of COVID. Things were calming down. I want to write about that. And then the NCVS came out. So we now, if we're going to write about the UCR, we have two major crime data systems. One is not inherently superior to the other. Uh, Janet Larson would argue in many ways the NCBS is better. I think the consensus view is they complement one another. They're both important. We see these modest declines in the UCR and these gigantic, unprecedented increases in the NCBS with no commentary about what those big increases might be all about. So we, our task was to inform readers what's going on with violent crime. And the best we could say was, well, it's going up, it's going down. It depends on the crime data source you look at. And, you know, that's troubling, I think, in all kinds of ways. But during a, a political season, when crime is an issue, like it is currently, when you've got these two very disparate estimates out there, Anyone can choose their, you will choose their poison. So if your claim is that crime is out of control, all you have to do is cite the NCBS and say, look, it's a government report. It's valid. If your claim is no, crime is calming down, then you just cite the UCR report, a government report, which is right. 
there's no current basis for deciding, quote unquote, which is right. You know, that's why we wrote that piece. We wrote it to call attention to this discrepancy. We wrote it hoping it would put pressure, if any were needed, on the NCBS in particular to figure out what had happened. Now, we do have some speculation about what might have happened. During the height of COVID, you know, NCBS household survey, their sampling strategies may have been affected in all kinds of ways by COVID restrictions. That could have reduced the actual incidence of crime back in, say, 21, so that the difference then between 22 and 21 was that much bigger. Maybe we did a little back of the envelope calculation. That could have been part of it, but it was certainly not all of it. Now, I think it's something of a puzzle. Right now, it is a puzzle. I have every confidence in the current staff and leadership of, of the BJS. They do great work. And uh, I have every hope that within not too long, we're going to see a, a good little assessment of what happened in 2022. But think of what it means for those of us who study crime trends. We had that, you guys may recall, back in 21, we didn't get good FBI estimates of crime because of the transition to NIBRS, right? And so many agencies didn't transition. So we didn't have a good estimate for 21. We thought that problem might have been close to being solved in 22 because the FBI permitted agencies that hadn't yet transitioned to NIBRS to send in their crime statistics under the former summary system. So we thought we had a better figure for 22. And then comes the NCVS, and now we don't know. So for two years in a row, we had this pretty significant uncertainty about what's going on with crime rates. And for people like me who make a living studying yeah. this stuff, that's an issue. Yeah. And I could just see, you know, for people who are studying this, but then like you also mentioned, the general public getting these two different lines of inquiry and maybe only hearing one of them, depending on what they're right. listening to, what they're reading. You know, there's this kind of general view out there that the public doesn't trust authoritative sources of anything, including right. scientific sources. This certainly doesn't help when it comes to crime. You know? No, yeah. not at all. All right. So you also recently wrote an article for The Criminologist called The Past and Future of Crime Forecasting in Criminology. Right. And just to kind of give a brief intro to this, crime forecasting has a bit of an ugly past, maybe a way to put it, primarily due to this discourse of an impending crime boom in the early 1990s, which proved to be off base. I'm not sure what the correct way to say this would be due to predictions being made solely based off of the size of the adolescent population. Can you tell us a little bit more about this past of crime forecasting and what you think went wrong? Yeah, that was a big deal at the time, and it's remained something of a big deal. I don't know if graduate students still learn about that problem or not, but... Super predators. Yeah. Yeah, it brought us super predators. So you have these two criminologists, John DiUlio, who I don't know, 
James Allen Fox, who I know pretty well, and I have a great deal of respect for, as it turns out. But both Jamie, as he's called, and John, in the early 90s, made these wildly, as it turns out, inaccurate predictions about what was going to happen to crime rates. They were going to boom during the 90s. Because as far as Fox and Diulio were concerned, the crime increases that had been occurring during the with fits and starts during the 70s and 80s were going to continue on the shoulders of an ever-growing adolescent population. They weren't even right about the ever-growing adolescent population, in fact, had really stopped growing, but give them that. So that was their argument. We got a lot of crime. Here comes a big generation. And in Diulio's words in particular, this isn't any old generation. This generation contains lots and lots of kids. He came to refer to as super predators, amoral, you know, the product of poor circumstances, disrupted households, you know, all the rest. And they were just going to create hell. And those predictions became very widespread. And they had an impact on policy. Now, how much is hard to calculate. But, you know, legislatures at the time that were toughening their sentencing policy, especially for youth, would often cite the term super predator or cite the work that Diulio in particular had done. And so here we were as criminologists. We hadn't been doing much forecasting to begin with, even though I think a mature social science should be engaged in a careful assessment of what's likely to come next, you know, not just simply what went before. We hadn't been doing much of that, a little bit. And Diulio and Fox came up with their quote-unquote forecast that turned out to be completely erroneous, generated a lot of ridicule for criminology, not just criticism. And that scared everybody off from forecasting. There have been I mean, not even a handful of forecasts done by criminologists since the 90s. Actually, one, interestingly enough, done by Jamie Foxx, and that one was done 20 years ago. So forecasting is all but gone. My issue in that paper was to say, that's a mistake. Certainly no mistake to reject the Diulio and Fox predictions. But you reject them because it's poor forecasting, not because it's forecasting per se. Diulio went on to forsake forecasting. He had kind of a mea culpa in which he said, in effect, I'm sorry, forget about the super predator stuff. I'm going to, and he did end up devoting a good bit of his time to prisoner rehabilitation. But then he said, look, my mistake was trying to forecast. In the social sciences, we just can't do it. We don't have the power. We don't have the information to do credible forecasting. So we shouldn't do it at all. I disagree. Any bona fide applied or policy science has to forecast. Imagine assessments of climate and weather in in which there was no forecast, right? Be weird. Very strange. It would be very strange. Good luck tomorrow, they would say. Right. No you never know. 
it maybe maybe it'll be like it was yesterday. We don't know. Yeah, so uh, we'll see. I think Colorado does fall under that. Or they're like, <laughs> it might snow tomorrow. We don't actually know. Well, yeah, and you raise a good point about the accuracy of forecasting, but you know, economics as well. We want to know from our social scientists. Certainly, we want good, meticulous studies of what went on in the past. But we also want to be able to glean from those studies some indication of what we might be looking forward to for all kinds of planning purposes, budget purposes. So, you know, I I don't think it's hard to make the case for forecasting. But why would you, even in the early 90s, when there hadn't been a lot of forecasting in criminology, why would you base these really momentous predictions on essentially nothing at all, right? There were some forecasting models in criminology they could have looked at, and certainly in other fields, there were lots. They decided they didn't need to. That was the mistake. The Had they actually engaged in a formal forecasting exercise, I wrote a paper, not the paper that I sent to you guys, but another paper that's currently under review. Had they done a, you know, estimated an actual forecasting model in the early 90s, they would have found that crime rates were forecasted to come down during the 90s, not to go up. So by Diulio rejecting forecasting, he rejected the very means by which they could have avoided that huge problem. So in the article, in the criminologist article that I sent along, I simply wanted to make the case for forecasting and I in criminology. And I used as an example forecasting crime rates in the United States over the last next several years. I try, you know, these are if you read some of the forecasting literature, you'll find the forecasting that I did in that article almost unrecognizable because it's so basic. Forecasting is a very, very advanced field of study. But given where we are as criminologists, as long as the basics, you get the basics right, we can learn a lot forecasting. One final word on forecasting, and this goes back to this whole issue of accuracy. The most important thing about forecasting is not that it's accurate. Now, that sounds weird. You want our forecast, of course, to be accurate. But we learn a lot. In fact, arguably, you could, you might say we learn even more from forecasts that are inaccurate than those that are accurate. And here's why. If you make an inaccurate forecast and it's done on the basis of a model that's explicable, you know what's in that model. Then you can go back and inspect the model to see where it went wrong, to see what might have had to have changed in order to generate a more accurate forecast. That is instructive. That tells you something you didn't know to begin with. Secondly, the best way to test theory, do so through a kind of forecasting exercise. So let's say you collect data on something about institutional corrections. And, you know, you've collected a lot of data. You want to test some hypotheses based on the data you collect. What do we ordinarily do? 
we collect our data, we develop indicators, we see if those indicators are related to one another in ways that we predicted they might be, and we proceed from there. And what forecasting enables you to do is the following. You go ahead and collect your data, but instead of estimating your model on all the data you just collected, and now we're assuming the data are over time, right? So you're collecting sequential data over time. You leave out of that equation several periods. So you estimate your equation on part of your data, and then you test the predictions from that estimation on the data that you did not include in the original estimation. That's a more powerful way, and I think a more persuasive way of testing theory. You know, that's done to some degree. I think it should be done to a greater degree. So I see we're closing in on the end of the hour, but all of much of what I wanted to say about forecasting, I said in that little article, I'm now near the end of my career. And I'm hopeful that what I have to say about forecasting will provoke some people, perhaps especially younger scholars just starting out, to get interested in forecasting. I think it's one of those things that's one of the more exciting things you can do as a social scientist. It's risky because you can be wrong. But as I said, when you're wrong, sometimes you learn more than when you're right. 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 Well, okay. So we want to kind of move into getting your thoughts on the field. But first, we want to ask, you know, looking back on your career about what accomplishments you are most proud of, either as a researcher, a mentor, professor, you know, something that you look back on and you have fond memories of. Well, the work I did with Steve Messner on Crime the American Dream certainly is something that I think we're both proud of. It was just, you know, so much fun working with Steve. We've written about this somewhere, but you know how that book started? We, uh, since we have a moment, let me take a moment. So Steve and I met back in the early 1980s. I wrote a paper. Well, I took a chapter out of my dissertation and read that paper at an ASC meeting back in Toronto in 1984. A couple of Steve's colleagues from Albany happened to be in that session. And the paper that I read, in part, replicated some of the work that Steve did and then took issue with, I don't even remember what I took issue with in his work. Anyway, they went back to Steve and they said, hey, there's this guy. He's uh, dealing with some of your work. Steve called me up. We got together for lunch. We hit it off. Turns out our interests were very, very similar. And over time, we were part of a small group of scholars who were trying to revive anomie theory, so-called strain theory. Strain theory had fallen on hard times during the 80s. Control theory took over. And we thought there was still merit in pursuing strain theory. So a number of us would set up sessions at ASC meetings, do our little work on strain theory. Steve and I continue to work. And then at a couple of, it turns out to be parties, I don't know why, but during ASC meetings, we get together in a corner. We Steve may still have the napkins, but we would jot down on napkins ideas for a book. 
And that's where that book, that was the genesis of that book. I don't have those napkins, but I think Steve may still. So that's where the book came from. Certainly enormously proud of what we were able to do there. And then after that, I think I have to say the work I've done on crime trends and trying to push the envelope, if you will, a little bit, the kinds of economic conditions and indicators that help us make sense of changes over time in crime. I think that's the second area that, you know, I'm proud of. I've spent a long career doing lots of different things. Sometimes I wish that I had done fewer things that I'd write a paper, but it didn't develop into much other than a single paper. I wish I had just, you know, put all that aside and just focus, focus, focus on crime trends in particular. But careers go where they go. You know, I'm not dissatisfied with the where with the way mine has turned out. All right. Our final question for you, and you've kind of started to dig into this already, but what do you think of the current state of the field of criminology? And where would you like to see the field move going forward, whether that's on forecasting or trends or something else? Yeah. Well, I like to see more forecasting. (laughs) You know, I don't know that I'm qualified to answer that question. I'm going to answer it from my own point of view, but my own point of view may be hopelessly out of date. I'm from the 1900. <laughs> so That's why we're asking you these questions. <laughs> I know, that's, that's a joke I borrowed from somebody else, but yeah, I don't, I honestly can't give you a good coherent sense of where I think the field is. I can tell you that I think there's some very, very good work going on right now. And I can tell you there's work going on that I don't think highly of. You guys may remember from sociology, the distinction that the sociologist C. Wright Mills made between abstracted empiricism and grand theory. That was Those terms ring a bell. I know I've read this. (laughs) Well, and what he was saying was, look, too much of the field was devoted to small-scale empirical studies that didn't amount to anything, right? And weren't didn't engage any big questions. And yet, on the other hand, there was also this corpus of work that was so abstract, so grand, as he put it, it didn't contribute much either. And so here's my sense of, in kind of using those terms, where we are as a field now. In, and I'll start with quote-unquote, grand theory. But I'd rather call it, instead of grand theory, I'll call it grand justice. When I started out as a sociologist back in the 70s, the field was undergoing an enormous, almost revolutionary change. There was enormous activity on the left. What we would, we didn't really call it then, but what we would now call a strong social justice orientation, Marxist criminology was quite popular, critical criminologies of all kinds, feminist criminology was on the way up, environmental criminology was on the way up. It was an explosive area and filled with tension. The meetings were filled with tension. I was a student at the time. I can assure you that as students, We were just as obnoxious 
to our faculty as students are today, so their faculty. So there was a strong social justice orientation in those days, just as there is right now, with one key difference. In those days, our effort was to throw the university off our backs, to get the university out of the way of learning. And frankly, that's how we put it. We did not want the university to, quote unquote, protect us from anything. The idea that we would crave safe spaces or make a great deal of noise over, you know, verbal aggression, microaggression, that, you know, we had other, that just simply wasn't part of the movement then. So the big difference was how we viewed the university. We came out of an era, a so-called in loco parentis, where the university in many ways took over the role of parenting, right, while you were there. We wanted to, and to a large degree did, throw all that off. What I see is coming back in the student movement, including in the social justice movement to a degree in criminology, is a desire to have the university protect students from offensive behaviors, harmful behaviors. In principle, there's nothing wrong with that, but I'm simply arguing that's a big difference. Now, the social justice orientation in criminology is by and large to a good, is a very, very good thing. I just don't want to see it get in the way of good science. I believe that what we do can be called, certainly a social science, can legitimately be called when it's done properly a science. I don't want to lose that. I don't want to sacrifice that for advocacy completely. I do realize that people come to their work with prior positions, and that's all to the good. But, you know, once you're in the work itself, once you're doing the work, you have to be able to put some blinders on so you can see what's there and not simply what you hope or thought might be there. What I tell my students is this, the cardinal quality of a good social scientist is curiosity. Having questions for which you genuinely don't know the answer. If all of your questions are questions for which you already have an answer, social science isn't for you. Maybe the law is for you or religion. <laughs> but social science is about seeking answers to questions for which you don't have already have an answer. And to the degree that the social justice orientation doesn't disturb that fundamental impetus for social science, I'm all for it. On the abstracted empiricism side, yes, but this is always the case. Yes, I think there are too many articles about trivia, about things that really in the long run don't matter. But who am I to say what in the long run matters, you know? So I'd like to see work that's more theoretically informed. Much of it is. So my overall sense, insofar as I have a sense of criminology, we're doing fine. Rather than kind of characterize the field as a whole, I just prefer to focus on papers, orientations, ideas that I think are good ones 
If they typify the entire field, fine. I doubt that they do. I don't think we're in big trouble. I think we would be if all we did was these little abstracted empiricist type studies, or all we did was advocate for one another social justice position. We need a social justice kind of undertow to our work to make it meaningful, humanly meaningful. And of course, we need to do empirical work in order to figure out if we're right or wrong. I wish I had something more coherent to say about the field, but I don't. No, I think that was good. And Jose and I actually have a forthcoming book chapter where we argue something similar of this idea of bringing the empirics back to science in relation to some of these great thoughts. And so we hope it's receptive, you know, it's taken well, but we are expecting some people to push back on it. But what are you going to (laughs) do? Right. All right. Well, those are all the questions that we have for you. Thank you so much again, Rick, for speaking with us. It's been an absolute pleasure to hear more about, you know, your background, your contributions to the field, your thoughts on criminology. If anyone wants to reach out to you, you know, we acknowledge that you're emeritus now, but you clearly are still working. So if people have questions, where can they reach out to you? What's the best way? Email is the best way. And you have my email address. Yep. Okay, we will post that on our website then. Email is always best. Fantastic. Well, thank you again. All right. I hope you have a good rest of your day. You too. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Crim Academy. That's T-H-E-C-R-I-M-A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. Or email us at thecrimacademy at gmail.com. See you next time. See you next time. time.